Hail and well met, everyone. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather, and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. So this week, as you could tell from the title, I'm going to be talking about regrettable superheroes. What I mean by this is superheroes where, especially looking back on it now, we can't really help but think, why did that become a thing? Why why is that a superhero someone decided to create? I'm specifically using for this episode a book called The League of Regrettable Superheroes by John Morris, and it's J-O-N and Morris, the way you would expect it to be spelled. The particular book I have is actually the Loot Crate edition. I previously had a Loot Crate subscription, which for anyone who doesn't know, Loot Crate is this fun website online where you can sign up for a subscription box and they send you nerdy stuff every month. So sometimes it's comic stuff, sometimes it might be something based off a TV show that's really popular. You never quite know. It varies month to month and they have a theme every month. One of the months I got sent this book, and it seemed like something that would be perfect for a Geek Thyself episode. There's a lot of superheroes listed in it, with little blurbs about all the different ones and sort of what their superpowers were, who created them, if we know who created them. Back, especially back in the golden age of comics way back when, sometimes things would get published and you would know maybe what company published it, but you wouldn't necessarily know who wrote it because it didn't become popular. Maybe it was a one-off. So some of these superheroes I'm going to talk about today may have only ever appeared in a single episode, but John Morris went through, he looked through a lot of the older ones. Because there are so many that he found, I'm actually only going to be talking about some of the regrettable superheroes from the Golden Age today. Now, he defines the Golden Age as 1938 to 1949. Different comic book specialists or different comic book writers or readers might disagree on the exact range of what constitutes the Golden Age. But there are a lot of people, himself included, who agree that the debut of Superman was generally sort of the start of the Golden Age, hence 1938. Because that is when Superman first debuted in Action Comics number one in the spring of 1938. So, moving ahead, let's discuss our first regrettable superhero. So in his book, he covers the three main ages of comic books. The Golden Age, which is the one I'm going to talk about today. The Silver Age. And then, of course, the Modern Age. Now... Especially back in the Golden Age, they were trying a lot of different and strange superheroes. So in particular, there's a lot from back then where you and I, looking back on it now, can't help but think, why did someone decide that was a good idea for a superhero? I mean, some of them are really weird. And some of them aren't necessarily weird, but just sort of the concept is a little wonky or strange or, you know, depending on your perspective, you may even think it was a dumb idea, but that's sort of something that you have to decide for yourself. Because no two people have exactly the same perspective. So, moving straight into our first regrettable superhero. The first one I want to talk about is called The Bouncer. That was his name, The Bouncer. So the basic premise of this story, which was created by Robert K. 
Kaniger and Louis Fairstad was that one of the descendants of Antaeus, who in Greek mythology wrestled and was defeated by Hercules, has decided that even though he has great physical prowess that he inherited from his ancestor, he doesn't want to do any athletic activities anymore. He wants to be a sculptor. And he creates a sculpture of his ancestor, Antaeus, which then comes to life and admonishes him for not using his athleticism to do good. And their particular special ability is the ability to bounce, which I find particularly strange knowing Greek mythology the way I do, because I love Greek mythology, because in the original story, Antaeus is a giant who is the son of Poseidon and Gaia, who is the earth. And so his whole shtick was that he got power from touching the earth, so he couldn't be defeated when he was wrestling someone as long as his feet touched the ground. So Hercules defeats him by picking him up off the ground and crushing him so that he can't rejuvenate himself. So knowing that, I don't understand why they would then turn that person into the bouncer. Even more entertaining about the whole thing is the fact that Antaeus Sr., I guess we'll call him, statue Antaeus, continues to wear the purple robes of Greece. So he's wearing like a purple toga and sandals. Whereas Antaeus Jr., the modern Antaeus in the story, has decided not to bother changing out of his work clothes. So he's wearing like paint splattered smocks and covered in sculpture dust. So that's a strange one. The next one is Dr. Hormone, who was created by Robert Bug. He was only around for, a, you know, a few series also, but his whole thing, besides the fact that his name is really not the best, is that it was sort of a Dr. Moreau sort of idea, where he had these, like, magic, well, not magic, but scientific creations which could then turn babies into men, it could make old women young again, it could give you abilities, and it also created half-beast, half-human people, all this sort of strangeness. And on top of that, they named him Dr. Hormone. So that's a different one. The next one I want to talk about is a really weird one because his name is so incredibly literal. Our next regrettable superhero is called The Eye, and it is exactly what it sounds like. He is literally a disembodied eye floating around and giving directions to his human agents who help him fight crime. The Eye was created by Frank Thomas in 1939, and he seemed to have almost omnipotent powers of observation, so he pretty much could know anything he wanted to about injustice and whatnot, and then he would send his human assistants out to solve the problems because he was a disembodied eye, so he couldn't actually touch anything. So, I mean, it's an interesting concept. I have to admit, I don't think I would have ever read it, but I imagine there are people out there who might have found it interesting. It was canceled only after about 12 episodes, or not episodes, 12 appearances, they stopped writing it after that, which happened with a lot of comics back in the day. And so we never really found out much about what the origin of the eye actually was. We don't know if it was a science experiment gone wrong. Is he from another dimension and he's peeking through into ours? Is he some sort of alien who chose to take the form of a giant eye? We never find out. 
But regardless, it's an interesting idea, I suppose. Definitely something that I think qualifies as a regrettable superhero. The next one I want to talk about is called Fantoma. F-A-N-T-O-M-A-H. She was created by Fletcher, excuse me, Fletcher Hanks, who was writing as Barkley Flagg, and first debuted in Jungle Comics number no. 2 in 1940 in February. The reason that's important is because she is arguably the first female superhero in comic books. There were others who had been written into comic strips in the newspaper or, you know, little things in other magazines, but she was the first one, uh, could be argued, was the first one to actually have her very own comic book. So that's a big deal. Now, interestingly enough, her full title was Fantoma, Mystery Woman of the Jungle. And despite living in the jungle, she was white-skinned, very blonde, very blue-eyed, and beautiful. Her She had actually two appearances. She, when she wasn't using her powers, she was a beautiful, beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman. And when she was using her powers, at least in the initial publications of it, her skin would go sort of blue and you could see like a skeleton through her skin. Her hair and everything stayed the same, but she became much more scary and ghoulish looking when using her powers. She also had seemingly endless powers. So, I mean, she was able to banish a villain to a dinosaur-populated asteroid. She turned jewel thieves into insects. She killed plunderers and killers that were trying to take over her domain. She got rid of a whole squadron of military bomber planes. I mean, her powers were practically endless, and apparently the creator, Fletcher Hanks, was actually known for doing that. One of his other big creations was Stardust the Super Wizard, who also was essentially all-powerful, just like Fantoma, and his sort of over-the-top style was one of his trademarks. So he was known for doing that. At one point during the publication's history, he actually left the project and the writers who continued on with it did tone down her abilities a little bit. She still had a lot of power, but they made her a little less crazy power levels. So she wasn't like a goddess anymore. She was more of a normal superhero level. The next one I want to talk about is Invisible Scarlet O'Neil. Now, she is also arguably one of the first superhero females in comics. However, she missed out on technically falling into that title because her first publication was in a comic strip and not a comic book, which, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the reasons why Fantoma is recognized by quite a few people as the first female superhero to have her own comic book. As the name of the comic suggests, Scarlett O'Neill was able to turn herself invisible. She was a perfect example of a superhero who got their powers because of some sort of genius in the family. In this case, her father, during experimentation in the home lab, let his daughter in there for some reason, and she managed to put a finger into one of the ray beams, and now whenever she pushes a specific spot on her wrist, it makes her turn invisible. So she could basically turn herself invisible at will. Her creator was a man named Russell Stamm, and he actually had also worked on the very popular Dick Tracy comic book series. So 
he went into it with sort of a, you know, guns blazing type of attitude, but he wanted to tone it down and make it so that more people would be interested and that parents wouldn't be as against it. So Scarlett O'Neill solved a lot more of her crime through her wits and without hurting people, and she also used her innate kindness. So her invisibility helped her sneak around and things like that or get in info that she needed, but she didn't actually hurt people very much. One of their promotional materials even boasted, Action without blood and thunder. And then another one said, Adventure, exciting but human. Fantasy, but with a humorous twist. So basically she was billed as a superhero who wasn't violent. She actually had a pretty good run also being published even into 1950. So, you know, she had like a 10-year run, which back then especially was pretty good. They started introducing new characters and they eventually dropped Invisible from her name. And at one point they also changed the name of the comic to stainless steel which was the name of a new character they had introduced that everybody liked but nonetheless a 10-year run back then for a female-led comic was pretty good to be honest i'm not a hundred percent sure why he considers her a regrettable one maybe it's because she didn't have crazy powers or maybe it's because of her name he doesn't actually go into that in the book at all as to why they're regrettable although a quote that he does have under her, the name of her comic is, I'd better remove my clothes so I can swing freely in the ring. So I'm assuming that has something to do with her clothes not always turning invisible with her. I'm not sure. Maybe that's why he considers her regrettable. The next regrettable one is another female superhero. Her name, I suspect, is a large portion of why he considers her a regrettable one. Her name is Lady Satan, which sounds, you know, like she's going to have some sort of black magic, devil magic situation. But actually, when she first debuted in 1941, she didn't have any superhuman powers whatsoever. Now, later, they sort of took her out of rotation and brought her back again. And when they brought her back, she did have powers, specifically black magic powers, which surprises no one given her name. But when she was originally created by George Tuska, she was just a woman who had been on a ship that was bombed in the Atlantic by Nazis during World War II, and she lost her fiancé and a lot of people she loved. So she was bitter and angry, and she used her intelligence and her beauty to sort of infiltrate and defeat Nazi groups and things like that. So basically, she was a Nazi-fighting superhero and didn't have any special powers until later, like I mentioned. The last one I want to talk about before going to break is also one that I found, honestly, the most interesting, especially considering how far back it was created. It's called Madame Fatal. So, you know, a play on the words femme fatale, Madame Fatal. So Madame Fatal was actually actor Richard Stanton. His wife passes away and his daughter is kidnapped. And he's a critically acclaimed character actor and known to be able to disguise himself as anyone. So he disguises, he disappears and disguises himself as an older woman named Madame Fatale or Madame Fatal. It doesn't say how they pronounced it. It was created by Art Pinagian, I think I'm saying that right, 
and it debuted in Crack Comics No. 1, which was a quality comics publication, in May of 1940. Some of the other aliases that she went by, or that he went by, were Old Lady Mortality, Grandma Death, and That Nice Mrs. Vengeance from Next Door. John Morris describes the comics as sort of a mix between the films Taken and Mrs. Doubtfire, which honestly, given the description of some of the stories and everything, sounds pretty accurate. I mean, the actor, Richard Stanton, was cross-dressing as Madame Fatale or Madame Fatal, but then was fighting crime and, you know, going after the people that had harmed his family. Of course, to everyone around him, he just appeared to be this sweet little old lady who lived with his parrot named Hamlet, but then he would go out and fight crime like a vigilante. So, very, very different. Uh, it's actually also the first known cross-dressing superhero in terms of gender bending. It wasn't a very long-run publication. It was only around for about two years because after that point, it had sort of worn off in terms of shock value of the images of a little old lady beating up thugs. But nonetheless, it's pretty cool that back then they were like, you know what? Let's create someone who portrays themselves as a different gender or who identifies as a different gender for a large portion of it. Because it's not something that had really been done in comics before. Now, granted, it's nowhere near the same level as, you know, nowadays where we have people who are recognized as being transgender, so they actually are a different gender. This person was just cross-dressing in the comic and specifically cross-dressing. He still identified as male. But... It's still something that I think is really interesting, and considering the time, this is 1940, I think the fact that they even had a cross-dressing superhero is kind of awesome. Now, obviously, it, it's made very clear from the comic that he is an actor portraying a character, and he's not actually transgender. He doesn't consider himself a woman. But nonetheless, the fact that in 1940, they even created this character considering how taboo a subject dressing up as a man or woman would have been at the time if you were the opposite gender is something that I'm find very interesting and I think it's cool that the comic lasted for two whole years because back then you know it I very easily could see how people could have become offended by it and it could have ended much sooner. And honestly, kind of like the invisible Scarlett O'Neill, I kind of have to disagree with John Morris on the fact that Madame Fatal was a regrettable superhero. Now, obviously, might have been portrayed very campy. I haven't actually read all the comics, because they would probably be nearly impossible to find. I didn't actually check, but I don't imagine it'd be easy. But... Nonetheless, the fact that they created a cross-dressing superhero I think is very cool, so I don't personally think it should be regrettable. I assume slash hope that the reason John Morris included her is because the name Madame Fatale is not, not amazing, but also because the origin story is a little weak. The whole, you know, male actor decides to dress up as a woman because he lost his wife and daughter, like, that's sad, but... I don't know, the idea of, mix, like he said, the idea of mixing Taken with Mrs. Doubtfire, my brain just explodes a little. So I could see where that could be regrettable, like it wasn't necessarily the best combination, 
But the idea as a whole of having a superhero who does that, I don't think is regrettable. With that, we're going to go into our mid-episode break. It's a little bit late this time, but that's okay. And I will be back in just a few minutes to tell you more about some regrettable superheroes of the golden age of comics. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me in the mid-episode break. I want to talk about a couple of things this time. One is the newest show to join Nerdsmith, which I'm so excited about, and that is Monster Crush. So Monster Crush is two women, Heaven Lee and Ellie. Heaven Lee knows a lot about cryptids, and Ellie doesn't really know anything about cryptids. Cryptids meaning different creatures and monsters and mythological beings and things like that. So the premise of Monster Crush is that Heavenly describes several different cryptids to Ellie, and there's usually a theme based around the ones she picks, and then Ellie decides who she wants to go on a date with. And along the way, they discuss the things they like about them, the things they don't. You get to learn some of the mythology and sort of the history of these different cryptids. It's really interesting. I have to admit, I plowed my way through all of their back episodes after they joined us. And you can find them on our website, nerdsmith.org. You can also find them on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. In addition, I do want to mention again, and I've, I've mentioned it before, but please, if you like my show, if you like any other show on the Nerdsmith Network, don't forget to like, review, and subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast listener you may use. Also, if you do want to subscribe to actually support the network or a particular show, what you can do is go to our website, nerdsmith.org slash donate. There's three different levels of donation. It's a monthly donation, and what you get from that is access to all of the bonus content. So every show on the network has bonus content, which is only accessible by our subscribers. None of the bonus loot, none of the bonus content is anything that you have to listen to in order to continue on with the show. However, they are fun. My own bonus loot from earlier this year when we had our subscription drive was me discussing 30 different topics in 30 minutes. Now, I actually timed myself doing every minute the little factoids. And I have to admit, the episode actually ended up closer to an hour, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that I talked in between topics. And also, if I was halfway through reading a fact that I thought was interesting, I didn't stop reading the fact. I kept reading and finished it because I wanted to hear it and I assumed my listeners might also. Since presumably you guys are here because you like learning. So with that, please don't forget to like, subscribe, review, especially on iTunes. That really does help us get more visibility. So my show or any other show on the Nerdsmith Network that you may like listening to. And with that, with our last few minutes, we're going to get back into regrettable superheroes of the Golden Age. Okay, so this next regrettable superhero... I actually understand why it's regrettable, because the storyline is kind of gruesome, but also the name is questionable, because it brings to mind happy nursery rhymes. This particular regrettable superhero is called Mother Hubbard, which exactly what you would think. Mother Hubbard, though, instead of, like, the nursery rhyme, going to her cupboard and finding it bare, goes to her cupboard and opens it to find a treasure trove of different witchy ingredients. 
Mother Hubbard is an actual witch, and she's depicted with the full-on conical hat with the stars and the wide brim. She's got the big hooked nose and, you know, the crone appearance. She's very unpleasant to look at. She's not a beautiful superhero. She is, in fact, an ugly witch. And she fights crime, but specifically she fights things that are out to get children, which is an interesting take on it. In a time when a lot of comic book superheroes were created, I mean, quite honestly, to fight Nazis, because that's what the U.S. was doing at the time. She was created in 1941, so it was World War II. Back then, a lot of superheroes were fighting the Nazis and the evil forces based off the war, she was fighting things like gnomes that wanted to steal children's eyes or um, creatures that wanted to take human children and use their souls to power dolls that would do their work for them so that the lazy creatures didn't have to work, things like that. So she fought those. And there's a lot of rhyme also, you know, the little quote-unquote witchy spells she would say. Um, such as, you know, talking about the ones that wanted to hurt children by taking their eyes, loosen eyes from out of head, no more children, you'll be fed. Things like that. You know, little cute rhymes. They don't know who actually created her. She only had really like three episodes or so, three, um, appearances, not a lot of them. But she first showed up in Scoop Comics number one, which was put out by Harry A. Chesler Publishing in 1941. So we know when she came out, we know she had several different scenarios where she was protecting children, and then she disappeared again. Um, one of the images of the sort of front of the comic is her talking to a crystal ball. Now my crystal I unseal to ferret out the crime I feel. So she spoke in rhyme to cast her spells and things like that, and then ran around saving kids. Honestly, kind of a strange one and definitely weird, but this one I would have read because it's got witches, it's got magic, it's got them saving kids. I totally would have read this comic if it existed when I was a kid. Okay, so our next regrettable superhero is Rainbow Boy. Yes, you heard me correctly, Rainbow Boy, who had a catch line, Time for Rainbow Boy to see what's cooking. Eh, I, I can kind of see where this one would be regrettable. It's definitely an interesting premise. He is a boy, as the name suggests, who discovered that he could supercharge himself with light energy while performing experiments at home. They don't go into what kind of experiments, but just something he was doing at home. He learned he could supercharge himself. So it allows him to fly at super light, at the speed of light, while a sort of a rainbow trails behind him. And he can also use the Roy G. Biv effect at will and create barriers and shields and bridges out of basically rainbows. So it's kind of an interesting idea. His costume was basically this plain white costume. And then across his chest, he had a rainbow and he had rainbow wristbands and a rainbow crest on top of a red helmet. It's really interesting looking. He was first published in Regular Fellas Heroic Comics number 14, which was put out by Eastern Color Printing in September of 1942. And no one knows who created him. But he only had a few appearances. He had about nine appearances and did do some work with a few other superheroes. But 
basically he was just a rainbow-powered teenager running around fighting crime, which is interesting. Um, it does say that in his private life, Rainbow Boy was Jay Watson, a boy genius who appears on the Wizard Kid radio program. So he was on some sort of program for geniuses, like a radio show situation. It's definitely an interesting premise. This one I don't think I would have read. Mother Hubbard 100% would have read that as a kid. Uh, Rainbow Boy? Eh, not so much. Maybe not so much. The last regrettable superhero that I want to talk about could arguably be considered a precursor to Spider-Man. She came out about 20 years before he did, so it is possible that someone who had read her comics then sort of had some ideas that led to the Spider-Man you and I know today. She was called Spider Queen, and in this particular one, her husband was some sort of genius who created a lot of things, and after she discovers that he was killed by enemy agents of a foreign government, she goes through his notes and she finds some notes about a spider web fluid. She ends up creating it and discovers that it's um, a thin and durable adhesive that sticks really strongly like glue. So basically it's like Spider-Man's shooting webs. And she designs herself some bracelets that can shoot the web so she can go swinging around and fight crime. So instead of being bitten by a radioactive spider, she found a recipe that her chemist husband created made herself wristbands, and took to crime fighting with no other superhuman abilities except that she now had string that she could swing around on. So definitely feels like a precursor to Spider-Man. I can't say for certain that the Spider-Man creators saw her as children and were like, ooh, I want to do that. But it wouldn't surprise me if maybe one of them had read one of her comics and got the idea for the swinging web for Spider-Man from that. Now, obviously, there's a ton of differences in the origin story, so they're not exactly the same. But I do think it's interesting that she existed so much before he did. Um, she was created by Else Lissau, who is believed to have been a pen name for two men, um, Louis and Arturo Casanueve. I'm probably butchering that, so I'm so sorry. She debuted in The Eagle Number no. 2, which was published by Fox Features in September of 1941. One note that John Morris does have in his book, which I found kind of funny, is that there's an ironic twist, which is that she still gets squicked out by spiders. So even though she calls herself Spider Queen and is swinging around on web, she doesn't actually like spiders, really doesn't like them, which I think is kind of a funny little twist. One thing that I found kind of funny about the comic and that I think, at least for me personally, is one of the reasons why she would qualify as a regrettable superhero is that, I mean, first of all, there were only three publications. She was only appeared like three times, so she definitely didn't have a very long run. But on top of that, there's the fact that there's another character in her stories who is a detective, Mike O'Bell. And he, you know, obviously he's a detective, he's fighting crime legally, she's illegally fighting it as vigilante, that's a thing. But they flirt with each other when she's in her normal persona of Shannon Kane, research assistant, and not Spider Queen. And there's a bunch of quotes on the page talking about how Kane makes comments about, yeah, you know, she's not a bad little doll, and... 
I like that cute fluffy type, things like that, which of course he has no idea she's the spider queen. So in actuality, she is not the cute fluffy type. She's going to go fight crime and beat up the bad guys. But he doesn't know that. He's just assuming she's a pretty face. So for me personally, that type of um, chauvinism and misogyny is not something I'm a huge fan of, which would make it a regrettable comic for me. Her though, finding some information from her you know, murdered husband and creating herself these brilliant bracelets that could shoot the fluid and then fighting crime. I personally think that's pretty cool. Honestly, the majority of the regrettable superheroes that I went over today, I actually don't think are all that regrettable in terms of their creation. Um, I definitely could see where other people may not find them as entertaining or, you know, some of them are really strange. I mean, the disembodied eye, I, that's, that would definitely not be my thing. But a, a lot of the female superheroes in particular, I found interesting. Now that's only the golden age ones. He also in the book goes through the silver age and the modern age and discusses more. And you can find the publication, The League of Regrettable Superheroes by John Morris, and it's J-O-N Morris on Amazon. He also has a few others, including, you know, regrettable villains and things like that. Regrettable sidekicks is another one he has on there. So you can find them there if you're interested in picking them up and looking at them. I definitely think it's interesting. There's a few superheroes in here that I feel like I might even go see if I can try to find them just because I, even if all I can find is pictures online and read some of the bits and pieces, I think it would just be interesting to see such as Mother Hubbard, for example. I actually really think that one would have been interesting to read as a kid. So with that, I'm going to close off this week's episode. Like always, if you have any questions that you would like answered or any topics that you would like covered, you can find me on Twitter at amethyst underscore magic, and that's magic with a CK. Or you can go to our Discord server, the Nerdsmith Discord server, and go to the Geek Thyself channel and at me requesting a specific topic. I'm more than happy to answer some questions. I've done a couple of requested topics already. You just have to let me know. And with that, I will talk to you guys next week. Please remember to check out the other wonderful podcasts and productions here at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic. And until then, don't forget to geek thyself. So you already love D&D, obviously, but you want to sharpen your skills as a DM or player, right? Enter Dear DM, a Dungeons & Dragons advice podcast where I sit down with your favorite dungeon masters and answer D&D questions asked by you. Natural 20 is nudist. Um. <laughs> a plucked kanku. Uh, charisma. Dump sack charisma. <laughs> really? Great questions in the community today. Some really fun bits to, to talk on and expand on. So Episodes release every other Tuesday and are available at nerdsmith.org or wherever you get your podcasts.